Well, good morning, everybody. This section right here nailed it. Everyone else, need a little work. You you still have time to go grab a cup of coffee before I get rolling here, so make your way to to the coffee pots. Hey, great to be with you guys today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, We're going to look at verses, I'm really going to primarily focus on verse 13 of chapter 10. We'll look at a few other verses as well. Uh, But you can begin making your way um, in your Bibles there. And I'm going to say a quick prayer, then we'll dive in. Lord, what a great day to declare your faithfulness uh, in in our lives, Lord. You are faithful and you never fail. I'm so grateful for those promises, God. And Lord, as we now begin to worship through the word, as we open up our, our Bibles, God, will you also open up our hearts that we might grow to be more like Christ, that we might live in a way that honors him, Lord. And God, we pray that everything we do here just magnifies and glorifies your name. God, I pray for my words to be seasoned with grace, Lord, and true. And again, God, may you be glorified in this moment. Thanks for this text. Thanks for the hope that it provides. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 2017, there was a young Chinese adventurer named Wo Yang Ning. And he entered into this competition that if he won, he would actually gain 19,000 US dollars. Pretty cool, right? Most of us would probably enter into a competition with those stakes uh, on the line. But here, there was a couple of caveats here. So the contest was he was to do as many pull-ups as he possibly could. Now, looking around the room, most of us probably couldn't do that many. Some of us could probably do a lot. I can't do very many. I, I would definitely lose a competition. But this guy, was, th- th- this was what he did. He entered in these competitions. He was very familiar with, with stuff like this. The two, ca- the two catches, though, where he was to do this while being suspended from the side of a building. And, number two, he was 671 feet off the ground. So this wasn't just a, a few feet off the ground pulling, doing pull-ups. He was 62 stories up. Now, this guy was known as a rooftopper. I don't know if you guys are familiar with rooftopping. A rooftopper is someone who will scale very high heights, like a building, a crane, some kind of monument or feature, many, many feet off the ground, and they will have a selfie stick or a GoPro. They'll take a selfie of themselves, and it goes on their social media platform. If you go to Instagram and you search uh, rooftopping, you'll see some pretty incredible pictures, very high up but they don't use any safety features whatsoever. There's no harnesses, no ropes to tie off with. They might use some kind of rope to to, uh, repel down the the structure, but that's it. Outside of that, no safety features whatsoever. Now, to give you an idea of what this looks like, we have a a minute and a half clip or so where you can see a couple of young guys from Ukraine climbing up the Southern Bridge and notice how basically they're just by themselves. They have nothing to help them in case they fall. Check this video out. На подольском я был уверен, а сейчас нет. Ну, почти уверен. Нет. Ты, ты легко соскользнешь. Я тебя не словно. Да не надо. Это реально страшно. Мне было смотреть страшно.
That's rooftoping. And to, to boot, they decide to play uh, Frogger with the oncoming traffic in a, in a subway train. Like, that's what rooftoping is. And, and fortunately for those two young men, they survived. They made it. Before Yong Ning in 2017, he wasn't so fortunate. See, as he began to do this pull-up contest, he got a few pull-ups in, and then tragically his hand slipped, and he fell to his death. Now, he did not fall the full 671 feet. He fell about 40 or 50 feet or so, but this day was anything but victorious. And what's fascinating is in this community, the rooftoping community, fatalities are a part of the deal. This wasn't the only fatality that this community has experienced. There's been multiple over the years. They scale these high heights with no safety features, thinking that falling is never going to happen to them. And, and they're driven by this overconfidence. And with, all, with, with that in mind, there's a thought that came to me that says, you know what, sometimes overconfidence can be fatal. And when we look at our text today, at least as we begin, this is kind of the message that Paul is sharing with us. And what we discover is not only is overconfidence fatal at times, but there's a way that we can prevent ourselves from walking down that path. There's a way that we can escape a spiritual fatality. And with that thought in mind, let's read our text and see what Paul is saying to us. I'm going to spend about half our time looking through verses 6 to 12 and the rest of the half looking at verse 13. This is what Paul uh, shares with us starting in verse 6. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written, the people who sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we begin in verse 6 with Paul using the history of ancient Israel to teach a spiritual lesson with the believers in Corinth. Now, please understand, Paul is not using Israel's highlight reel here. This is a low light. This is some tragic uh, history that Paul is sharing, and he's using the example of Israel's rampant idolatry. And he's going to say a couple of things. In verse 6, he gives us the reason why he's using this analogy. He says, that we might not desire evil as they did in verse 6. And in verse 7, he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Paul is, is making it very clear. I'm going to use this history to teach us some spiritual lessons. Don't desire evil and avoid idolatry. And then Paul says something in verse 7 that's quite interesting. He says, well, people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. How could this be bad? But this was actually in reference to one of the most egregious acts of idolatry in the nation's history. This was the scene of worshiping the golden calf. 
if you go back to Exodus. See, while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God, Israel began to grow impatient. Israel began to question God's faithfulness. Israel began to question God's goodness. Israel began to grow a little bit angsty about what was happening. So the people appealed to Aaron. They brought, them, they brought him their gold. They brought him everything he needed to fashion an idol for the people. And so Israel brought these offerings. The calf was created. The calf was finished. It was proudly and boldly displayed. And that's when the party began. That's when they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play in the presence of this idol. Now, I think there are a couple things we need to note about what's happening here. First of all, this idea of eating and drinking. But what's this all about? Well, in chapter 10, if we go up to verses 3 and 4, Paul actually mentions this idea of spiritual eating and spiritual drinking, kind of referencing it to the manna and the water that was given to the people of Israel during their Exodus wanderings. So it's kind of direct contrast of, okay, this food that was given by God was to bring them into a deeper, more meaningful, closer relationship with God. And then if we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. So this idea of, of doing what we do, eating, drinking, these gifts, provisions provided by God to lead us to worship. But what's the nation of Israel doing? And they're eating and drinking. It's not for the glory of God. It's for the glory of the golden calf. They sat down to eat. They, they sat down to drink. And they were just doing this in the presence of the idol. The second thing that strikes me was just how aloof they were to their idolatry. They were just eating and drinking, something you would just normally do, part of your daily routine, part of your daily exercise, and they're just doing it in front of an idol. It's almost as if they didn't have a conscious ability to think through the reality that we're participating in idolatry. Or maybe even more tragically, maybe they had just become so used to the idol, it was just normal. This is just our God now. This is just who we're going to worship now. If we can go back to our original illustration, Israel was spiritually rooftopping. They were running a high risk of being severely spiritually harmed. They didn't think they were ever going to fall. There was no ability to think through the end of this process. And, and when that happens, it usually becomes fatal. And in addition to eating and drinking, Paul reminds us that Israel also rose up to play. They were eating and drinking and playing. So now this goes not just passive worship of idols, but now it's very expressive and it's very public. See, the phrase rose up to play is in reference to the singing and dancing that occurred after the golden calf was finished and unveiled. And Moses and Joseph actually have a conversation about what's happening down below. What's, what's happening down there? Joseph, or I'm sorry, Mo, uh, Joshua says this to Moses. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war coming in the camp. But it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the cry of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. The noise that Joshua actually heard probably sounded a lot more like a worship service 
It was a party. They were celebrating. They were excited to be in the presence of this idol. And they began to sing, behold our golden calf. Not behold our God. Not behold the one who brought us out of Egypt. Behold our golden calf. And they began to sing worship songs to this image. Active celebration of an idol. This is such a tragic commentary on the nation of Israel. And it was a strong word of warning to the Corinthian people. But I also think this is a strong word of warning to Highland Community Church as well. So the reality is, as people, as human, sinful people, we have an idolatry problem. See, in our hearts, we're continually manufacturing idols. And just the moment we think we have one kind of at bay, we have another one that hits us with a surprise attack. We manufacture idols all the time. An idol is anything that we elevate to the position that only God can be in our life. Anything. Relationships, possessions, pleasures, you name it. If we elevate to the place of God, that is an idol. And it's a problem for us. Listen, our idols cannot become our pets. We cannot coddle them. We cannot feed them. We cannot harbor them. Our idols will destroy us. It reminds me of a story I heard of a circus performer who numerous times had performed this routine where she would have some kind of twirling batons probably on fire and she would dance around this cage that happened to house a lion. And the couple hundred times before, everything went just fine. Well, this one specific performance The crowd was going crazy. They were chanting, they were clapping, they were cheering. And this lady was doing her number. And then without moment's notice, this lion pounced and began to maul on her. Our idols are like that. That's what our idolatry is like. It's like crawling into a cage with a real live, very hungry lion. It will pounce on us. It may seem as if there's nothing wrong. I've gotten away with this for so long. I've been able to hide this. No one's saying anything. I'm sneaking, I'm sneaking under the radar. Like this, this is great, but we can't keep it as a pet. There will come a moment when this will pounce on us and we will be spiritually harmed. We cannot play nice with our idolatry. So in addition to Israel eating and drinking and rising up to play, Some commentators actually share that there was potential sexual immorality happening in this celebration as well. And Paul addresses that specifically in the text, doesn't he? Flee, run, get away from sexual immorality. Put these things off. Again, it's a low light in Israel's history. In verses 9 and 10, he goes on to say that they put Christ to the test. They were grumbling because of their rebellion, their idolatry, their sin towards the Lord. And they were not innocent bystanders. They were an active participant in their rebellion towards God, questioning God's character, grumbling when they didn't get what they want. They spoke against God's provision and longed to go back to the land in which they were enslaved. Now, Israel, well, yeah, we were in slavery, but man, at least we had some food to eat. Yeah, we were enslaved and we were getting beat every day. We had to work countless hours. But at least we had a place to lay our head. Like, think about the distortion of their thought life in this moment. Moses, why did you bring us here? Think about the history of grumbling and rebellion. Again, not Israel's highlights here. But Paul is using it for a very specific purpose. 
Paul's using this for a very specific reason. Notice again why he tells us twice. Once in verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And he says again in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul is saying, let me tell you why I'm sharing this. This is a warning. This is a warning. Paul's saying, what was recorded in the history of ancient Israel is not recorded just for history's sake. It's for our instruction. The Greek word here is nothesia. It means admonition, a divine warning from the Lord. So the instruction to the Corinthian church is to remember, listen, what has been recorded in Scripture the, the wisdom that's pouring through its pages. The reason we pick it up and read it and dive into it is to live it out and apply it to our life and grow closer in our walk with God. With God. We want to apply its counsel. Highland Community Church, we want to do the same thing. What was written in former days was for our instruction so that we might live in a way that pleases God. It's actually a wonderful passage on the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And every time the word is open, a humble response must happen in our hearts. As the word is revealed, let's move in towards Christ. But I fear that often there's a temptation. I think when we hear a history like this, or we're thinking back to Old Testament theology, I think the temptation might be to say, well, that was a struggle for Israel. That's not a struggle for me. We might even say, I am above this. And those are four very dangerous words. And the moment that we think that we're above something, that's when we tend to let our guard down. That's when our hand slips off the side of the building. That's when the, the line we're dancing around begins to pounce on us. Now, each of us are going to be prone to sin in different areas of our life. And some sins are going to be very easy to say no to. And some are going to be a little bit harder However, we must not think that somehow we have immunity over sin. We don't. Highland Church, we cannot become spiritual rooftoppers. And this is exactly what the message Paul is trying to get across in these first few verses. And then in verse 12, he says this, Therefore, remember, right? He says, we're thinking about this so we don't desire evil. We don't want to be idolatry. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't become overconfident. Don't walk unwisely. Don't walk recklessly. Corinthians, be wise to listen to the counsel of those who have gone before you. Do not become overly confident in yourselves. Highland Church, do not become overly confident in yourself. And that strikes right at our hearts, doesn't it? It strikes right at our pride. Because we can become easily overconfident in our abilities, in our knowledge, in our experiences. And in turn, what happens is we begin to trust ourselves more than we trust in Christ. Think of what the writer says in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. And what happens? It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. See, God makes our paths straight. We make our paths crooked. 
God's wisdom leads to righteousness. Our wisdom leads to evil. Our wisdom leads to sickness spiritually. God's wisdom leads to spiritual refreshment. And just as Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to seek the wisdom of God and to not be overconfident, Highland, may we be obedient to this wisdom. If we think we're standing, nothing can bring us down. Nothing can can sabotage our lifestyle. Be careful because pain is in the future. Pain is in the crooked paths are straight ahead. Don't become a spiritual rooftopper. Now, I'm not sure if you picked up on this at this point, but this is a hard word of warning from Paul. He's not leaving any stone unturned. He's not pulling punches. He's not making nice here. And then we get to verse 13 of the text. See, at this point, there's a transition. Paul is moving away from warning, and he begins to share a deep, heartfelt word of encouragement and hope. And compared to the rest of the chapter, it seems as if verse 13 is kind of a standalone text. How does this fit in with the rest of the chapter? But I think what Paul's doing is he's addressing two sides of the same coin and dealing with temptation and dealing with sin. We've already talked about one side of the coin. That's overconfidence. See, on the, on the one side, it's my sin can, can never harm me. I'm, I'm dancing in this cage. Nothing's ever bit me. This is, this is where I live. I'm, I'm just living in overconfidence. That's the one side of the coin. Then the other side of the coin is no hope. Because some of us might be thinking, well, I've been dealing with this sin struggle for a long time. Decades. Years. And so we might have the temptation to say, what's the point of even fighting this? There's no hope. So Paul, after he gives the word of warning of being overconfident, he then begins to dress the hopeless in verse 13. This is where he starts. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Wow. I I love how Paul addresses verse 13. Saturated, dripping with hope. He says to the Corinthians, the temptation you've been facing, this decade-long struggle, this, this besetting sin you have been wrestling with day in and day out, he says you're not alone in your struggle. This is not unique. It's not isolated. Not a first-time case. It's common. Think about how hope-filling that is. Think about that. Because how many of us, think about your situation, think about your sin struggle, and you're like, man, I've been dealing with this since I've been 13 years old. I've been dealing with this for months. I just can't seem to find victory in my life. No one knows how this feels. I'm alone in this. And Paul says, no, you're not alone. It's not unique. You're not a unique case. This is not first time There's hope. You're not alone. Another thing I think Paul is saying in this text is that there's no sin that is irresistible. There's no sin that is irresistible. Ultimately, for those of us in Christ, we don't have to say yes to sin. For those of us in union with Jesus, we don't have to say yes. Think about what Paul says in Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Because of Christ in us, because of our union with him, sin is no longer our master, Jesus is. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We serve a risen Savior who took our sin and put it to death on the cross. I recently read a book that illustrates this point well. The book is telling a story of how one can, can overcome addiction. And, and this particular gentleman uh, was, was dealing with a lifelong, several decade addiction that he has had now a, a great season of victory over. And he's sharing this with the group and how he's lived his life and the story and the, the journey that he's been on. And he says, I feel this tension in my heart. On the one side, I feel this burning desire to live in a way that pleases and, and honors Christ. But on the other side, I feel this tension to give in to my, my indulgence, my addiction one more time. He used it this way. He says, I feel like I'm being pulled in two different directions by two different horses. And someone from the group asked a question. He says, well, which horse wins? And the man says, whichever one I say giddy up to. See, what the man was saying is, I have a choice in the matter because my addiction is no longer my master. Jesus is my master. And because of his power in me, because of his power flowing through me, I can say no. Now, if you're struggling with addiction of any kind, my heart breaks for you. My, I'm, my heart is crushed for you. But I also want you to know there's hope for you. There's hope for you. Through the power of the Spirit, through the gifting of others, there is hope, there is help. And one of the helps we know for sure is that the sin that we are faced with is not irresistible through the power of Christ. And after Paul says that no sin is irresistible, he then shares how one can, can overcome the attraction of sin in their heart. It's the faithfulness of God. See, boldly, emphatically, Paul declares, God is faithful. See, the power of their faithful God is the only hope the Corinthians have if they wish to overcome sinful temptation in their heart. They must have a deep and, 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 and resounding belief in God's trustworthiness and goodness as they engage with the spiritual forces of darkness. And Paul is... This is not the first time in this letter that Paul's addressing the faithfulness of God. In fact, Paul begins his letter by directing their gaze to the faithfulness of God. This is what he says in verses four to nine. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, and God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So just as we see the faithfulness of God on full display in our salvation, we now see the faithfulness of God on display in our sanctification. God's grace doesn't somehow disappear when we become a believer. No, that, that transfers and is carried with us till we are fully glorified in his presence. And so not only is sin not irresistible, 
God gives us an escape plan. This is why I think having the illustrations of ancient Israel is so critical to our text. Because notice that Paul says some fell into idolatry. But others executed the escape plan. Some pursued sexual immorality, but others executed the escape plan. For every temptation you and I encounter, there's always an escape plan. And it's deeply rooted in the faithfulness of God. And this is why Paul tells the Corinthians, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. I think this is where the misapplication, misunderstanding of this verse comes into play. Because some will say that, well, this verse is saying God never gives you more than you can handle. But I'm not sure that's what this verse is saying. In context, we learn that we are never tempted beyond our ability because the believer has an unlimited access to the sufficient grace of God. That well never runs dry. And in his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul would actually talk about this in chapter 12. This is what Paul says in verses 7 to 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And God said, sure thing, right away, I'll do it right now. Your Bible doesn't say that either, huh? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul realized that in order to make it through this season of testing, he would need to rely on the sufficient grace of God. This is how he was going to overcome. I don't think there's any record of that thorn ever be taking away, being taken away from Paul. But Paul hears from the Lord, I'm going to give you something so much better. I'm going to give you my grace. See, God often puts us in positions that from our human perspective are way more than we could ever handle. Paul even agrees with this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we despaired of life itself. We thought we were in a season of death. We thought this was the toughest test we would ever face. Yet in the midst of those trials, in the midst of that testing, in the midst of us enduring sinful temptation in our life, we have the whisper of God saying, my grace is sufficient for you. And because we hear the voice of God and because we believe that God's grace is sufficient, we have the ability to choose the escape plan. So that brings a question to the surface, though, doesn't it? What's the escape plan? What is this escape plan that we can execute? I think there's two ways that we can initiate and execute the escape plan. We endure and we flee. And we see this clearly in our text, don't we? Remember, Paul says, but with a temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. If we want to endure, or if we want to initiate the escape plan, we must endure. This is what Paul realized when dealing with the thorn in his flesh. The escape plan was to trust God, to remain faithful, to rely on his grace and endure it. And he's not the only biblical character that's had to do this in history, is he? Think about Job. 
as he endured hardship after hardship, temptation after temptation, he could only endure. Think about Joseph, horrendously mistreated by his brothers. And then along his journey, falsely accused of sexual assault, thrown into prison for a few years. What could Joseph do but only endure? Or we think about Daniel, who faced the threat of death at worshiping the Lord. And what did Daniel do? Boldly worshiped, boldly prayed, and he endured. Jesus, when interacting with a, a battle with Satan in Matthew 4, what did he do? He endured. Now, that is not to say that somehow endurance is, is passive. I think, I think endurance is very much active. So I think we endure by crying out to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I'm wrestling, I'm struggling. I have these things in my life. I'm just in, in the grips of spiritual battle. Lord, I, I'm crying out to you. We, we endure by praying. I think we endure by pouring over the pages of scripture and then committing those passages to our heart. I think we endure by engaging in corporate worship with our brothers and sisters. I think we endure by engaging in deep, meaningful Christian community. I think we endure by serving others with the, the gifts the Spirit has given to us. Endurance is anything but a passive response to temptation. It's very much active. In order to execute the escape plan, we must endure. A second way we escape, execute the escape plan is actually found in verse 14, a verse that I have not read yet. But this is what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved, therefore, Corinthian brothers and sisters, therefore, my brothers and sisters at Highland Community Church, if we want to escape, we need to flee from idolatry. We run. We run. When we see our hearts are prone to the clutches of idolatry, we must run the other way. And I think there are a number of ways in which we can, we can do this, but practically, I want to think of just a couple of ways. One is initiate radical amputation. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this principle, it's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your body go into hell. Now, I'm not sure Jesus is being literal here. I'm not saying he is, he is teaching that every time we sin, we need to lop off a body part. I'm not sure that's what Jesus is teaching. But I think what Jesus is teaching is that sometimes we have to take what seems to be extreme measures in our battle against sin. Sometimes we have to make extreme measures. Sometimes it's going to feel like an amputation. This hurts. This, this, is, this is killing me. But wow. That, that refreshment that comes, right, that we read about in Proverbs 3, how good does that feel when God rubs that spiritual salve over that wound? So for those of us that may be engaged in pornography, maybe it looks like this. I'm getting rid of my tech devices. I'm going to go back to a device that I have zero access to internet. I'm getting rid of my laptop. I'm getting rid of my PC. I'm getting rid of anything that might lead me into temptation. Does that sound extreme? It's worth it. 
Think about what, what it looks like as we gaze upon the cross. That it's, it's extreme. For those of us who are dealing with control, my way or the highway, I want it to look like this on my time frame at this exact moment, and if it doesn't happen in this exact way at this time in this moment, everyone else is going to know. And I will manipulate the situation to get my way at this exact moment. We have outbursts. We have tantrums, even as adults. What does radical amputation look like here? Let's confess that to a friend. I have a control problem. I want it my way all the time, and if I don't, I can't handle myself. Help me with this. Can you pray for me? Can you give me some counsel here? I need help with this. Or maybe it's anger. There's a couple ways to express anger, right? There's outbursts. I'm going to be very vocal and I'm going to yell and scream, punch holes in the walls. Or it's, I'm not talking to anybody ever. I'm going into my shell and I'm distancing myself and that's anger. What's radical amputation look like there? That's finding some help. I'm angry and I don't know why I'm angry. I need some mechanisms in my life for someone to hold me accountable to my anger. Radical amputation is one way that we flee from idolatry. Just chop it off. And finally, fleeing from idolatry happens when we have a right view of God. In other words, we allow our beliefs about God to influence our behavior. I like what A.W. Tozer says, the most important, what we think about, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Or as one other scholar says, the real reason God can deliver you is because he is the only one who is more beautiful than your sin. Not only does he give you the power and a reason to say no to your sin, but he gives you a reason to say yes to something better, something more beautiful and life-giving. So those of us who are having a hard time fleeing from sin, executing the escape plan, what is your view of God? Please understand that because of our beliefs about God, it does impact how we live our life. We have to have this right understanding. And if we want to have a right understanding of God's grace and justice in our life, we look to the cross. If we want to know about God's love and have a deep understanding of God's love for us, we look to the cross. If we want to have a deeper sense of, God, of God's faithfulness in our life, we look to the cross. It's fully and gloriously displayed on Christ, on the cross. The more our beliefs about God are correct, the easier it is to flee from sin and execute God's escape plan and run to him. So here's my question for all of us. How's our struggle with sin going? Do you feel that somehow you've out God's grace? You haven't. You haven't. Do you feel like you need to radically amputate some things in your life? Start today. Start today. One brother said to me one time, it's either one day or day one. We get to decide. One day I'll get to this. How about day one is today? We're going to start right now. Remember, we have a faithful God who has given us everything we need to live a life that brings him honor and glory, deeply entrenched in God's all-sufficient grace. There is hope for us. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you 
I might be able to endure it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that not only does this address the the temptation to be overconfident in our life, but Lord, it addresses the hopelessness that we can feel as we are engaged in this spiritual battle. And Lord, I pray for all of us in the room that we would just have a glimpse of the all-sufficient grace that you provide, that you have shown us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that you have given us an escape plan and you desire to see us grow, to be conformed more and more into the image of your son. So God, as we move away from here, as we go about our week, God, just put the conviction of your spirit into our hearts that we might avoid sin and we might pursue you. God, you are more beautiful. And God, we are not interested in sitting down before our idols and saying, behold, our golden calf. We want to sit before you and gloriously, emphatically, boldly proclaim, behold, our God. So God, give us that motivation. Give us that encouragement. Give us that power through your spirit in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.